This is Jonah Chester and Sholly Pittman with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Another Republican state lawmaker says he does not support suing the UW system over its COVID-19 protocols. State Senator Robert Coles announced today he wouldn't support a legal challenge to the UW system. Earlier this week, Assembly Majority Leader Jim Steinecke tweeted he also doesn't support the potential legal showdown. State Senator Steve Noss, co-chair of the legislature's Rules Committee, has threatened to sue the UW system if campus COVID-19 protocols were not submitted to the legislature for approval. Interim UW System President Tommy Thompson said last week, quote, I'm not going to be intimidated. Wisconsin is poised to receive $14 million as part of a massive settlement against the country's four largest tobacco companies, including Philip Morris and R.J. Reynolds. The Associated Press reports that the settlement stems from a 1998 lawsuit brought by 46 states, which sought reimbursement for smoking-related health care costs. Today's ruling from an arbitration panel found that tobacco companies that did not sign that settlement agreement still must pay millions to the states that they withheld from. Milwaukee County Clerk George Christensen won't turn over ballots and voting machines to the State Assembly's Election Committee. That's according to the AP. The Republican-controlled committee, chaired by Representative Janelle Brangen of Menominee Falls, is conducting one of several GOP-led investigations into the 2020 presidential election. As part of that investigation, Brangen has issued legally invalid subpoenas to election clerks in Milwaukee and Brown counties. To make the process legal, the state's nonpartisan attorneys say those subpoenas need the signature of Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. Voss, who is conducting his own investigation into the election, says he won't sign Branchen's subpoenas. Wisconsin Supreme Court is set to resume in-person hearings for the first time in more than a year. The state's high court, like the lower courts, went virtual at the start of the pandemic in March 2020. Wisconsin's seven Supreme Court justices will be returning to their chambers next Thursday. The court's oral arguments will be open for all to attend, and the Wisconsin State Journal reports that the court is adopting several public health precautions. That includes antiviral surface cleaning, clear plastic dividers between justices, and hand sanitizer. Masks will be provided, but are not mandatory. Lowcast, a nonprofit streaming service that promised dozens of local TV channels for free to people who had cut the cord with their cable companies, has shut down after losing a federal court case brought by major broadcast networks. The New York Times reports that Lowcast plans to appeal the ruling. In a statement on Twitter, Lowcast announced they would immediately suspend operations. Lowcast began offering local TV channels to Madison viewers in January. It had recently expanded to its second Wisconsin market, Milwaukee, at the beginning of August. WORT spoke with founder David Goodfriend, a lawyer based out of D.C., but who was born and raised in Madison, in January, just as the service was released locally. You can find that interview online at wortfm.org. 
Isthmus, which we should mention is out with a new monthly newspaper today, reports that a bill in Congress would provide funding to local media. It's up for a vote in the next few weeks. The Local Journalism Sustainability Act is currently pending in Congress. The bill would create three new tax credits for journalists, subscribers, and advertisers to support local journalism. And now for your daily COVID-19 numbers. Wisconsin, Wisconsin's Department of Health Services reports that the state's rolling seven-day average of new COVID-19 cases continues to rise. As of today, the state is averaging 1,744 new COVID cases per day. Wisconsin's seven-day average of those hospitalized with COVID was 867 as of Tuesday. Nearly 99% of the state's hospital beds are currently in use. And now, on to today's top stories. Madison City leaders are signaling their support for UW Health nurses and their right to unionize. WORT reporter Seeger Gray has the story. The COVID-19 pandemic has presented numerous challenges for frontline medical workers. Since last March, nurses and hospital workers have faced staffing shortages, inadequate personal protective equipment, and medical misinformation. Susan Nickel, a registered nurse at UW Health, said at a press conference today that many nurses are afraid to speak up for fear of being fired. When they do speak up, nurses often find that UW Health administrators don't address their concerns. Since 2014, without our union, we have been at will employees that management can fire without just cause. That adds a large measure of fear for nurses who want to speak up about staffing levels, patient safety, fair treatment. UW Health nurses had a union until 2014, after Act 10 restricted collective bargaining rights and the nurses' contract expired. Nurses at UW Health announced their intention to organize in 2019. Since then, they've been campaigning to have the UW Hospitals and Clinics Authority Board recognize their right to unionize. Mariah Clark, a registered nurse at UW Health, says medical workers deserve to have a place at the table when setting future workplace health measures. It's only this spring that we have finally gotten to the point where we are allowed to change our masks once a day. And honestly, that still isn't safe. And we can never ever let this happen again. We need a strong, authentic, independent say at our hospital. We need the ability to collectively negotiate for safe staffing, adequate personal protective equipment, continuing education benefits, fair and flexible scheduling, and other urgent standards. Earlier this week, Madison Alders Patrick Heck and Lindsay Lemmer introduced a resolution in support of the UW Health Nurses organizing efforts. The resolution is co-sponsored by Mayor Sacha Rhodes-Conway, Common Council President Syed Abbas, and several other Alders. The UW Hospitals and Clinics Authority Board has maintained that Act 10 prevents them from negotiating a new agreement. That's a claim that some labor leaders reject. In the council's proposed resolution, Alders state explicitly that according to state attorneys, neither Act 10 nor any other state law stops UW Health from negotiating with nurses. 
When asked for comment on the proposed resolution, a UW Health spokesperson wrote in an email that, quote, UW Health leaders and staff nurses work together directly and collaboratively to meet the needs of our patients while following all state and federal laws related to our workforce. Our robust system of nursing shared governance is part of what makes UW Health a great place to work and a place our patients receive truly remarkable care. This is the exact same statement provided to WORT in May when state legislators, including Governor Tony Evers, spoke in support of UW Health nurses' union efforts. The spokesperson declined to comment further. According to the UW Health website, Shared governance is a system of collaborative decision-making in which nurses help guide decisions that affect them alongside management. Ashley Campbell, a UW Health registered nurse, says that system doesn't work. Since we lost our union, we have had no effective means of ensuring that our concerns are addressed. What we have instead, so-called shared governance, is not an independent voice for us and it is not able to hold management accountable for what we need. The proposed Common Council resolution calls on the UW Hospitals and Clinics Authority Board and UW Health to hold a union election without interference or intimidation before the end of the year. If UW Health holds an election and a simple majority of nurses who participate vote in favor of unionizing, the negotiation process to create an official union contract will begin. Earlier this spring, nurses at nearby Meritor Health successfully renegotiated a contract with their employers, a process that was also supported by area Democratic lawmakers. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Seeger Gray. Today was the first day of school for some Madison students. While the kids were out enjoying their summer break, Madison school district officials were planning for yet another year that is shaping up to be far from ordinary. Our producer, Jonah Chester, takes us from here. Late last week, the Madison Metropolitan School District announced that it would be launching a virtual education program for some students. The program, which caters to grades 4K through 5th, was originally designed for 150 students. By the time the application window closed on Monday, more than 750 families had applied for the program. In response to the increased demand for the virtual school, MMSD spokesperson Tim Lamont says the district is pushing the virtual option start date from today to September 13th. That's a fact some parents weren't aware of until yesterday evening. And so uh, last night or, or late yesterday, uh, we communicated to all uh, families, 750 or so families that we were doing this, that their uh, students were going to be placed into the uh, virtual option and that we would be providing more information um, today and, and over the next couple days. Lamont says the district will be using the extra time to help shift teachers to staff the program. He says exact staffing details for the virtual option, which saw a five-fold demand compared to what the district planned for, will be released soon. We decided uh, to expand this uh, to everyone interested uh, just a day or two ago. And so we are going to be uh, providing that information in the upcoming days. It's just one extra wrinkle for a school year that's shaping up to be another year disrupted by the coronavirus. The district is expanding on Dane County's indoor mask mandate. MMSD announced yesterday that all elementary and middle schoolers, as well as school staff, will be required to wear masks outdoors. 
That rule will extend through at least the first half of the fall semester. And last Wednesday, MMSD announced that it would be shifting start and dismissal times for some schools. That comes as the district continues to cope with a shortage of bus drivers, a trend that's playing out across the nation. Meanwhile, Madison's school board has ordered the district to begin drafting a vaccine mandate for school employees. But that new vaccination policy won't be approved until the end of September at the earliest. According to data from the state's Department of Health Services, nearly 75% of folks who live in the Madison Metropolitan School District, or roughly 183,000 people, have completed their COVID-19 vaccine series. But Madison's kids aren't the only ones heading back to school this month. UW-Madison officials report that 88% of students have completed their vaccination series, 92% of the campus's employees have been fully vaccinated, and all told, 90% of the entire UW-Madison campus community has been fully vaccinated. Relatedly, the Wisconsin State Journal reports that UW-Madison's leaders are reviewing their handling of online teaching requests from instructors with a medical condition or disability. That comes after several faculty groups reported that vulnerable instructors were having their applications to teach remotely denied. And over on the Edgewood College campus, On the Edge reports that a tenured professor was fired after she requested an accommodation to teach classes online. Professor Susan Rustick told the student newspaper that she has Asperger's syndrome and can't tolerate wearing a mask. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Every other Thursday, our producer Jonah Chester sits down with Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open records and open government for a segment we call Transparency Talk. The topic this week, requesting records for investigations. A quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. All right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line for our every other week roundup of open government news, open government uh, debate, open government knowledge. Tom Kamenick, founder and president over there at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you doing this week? Good. For a sec, I thought you were going to say open government nonsense, and I figured, well, that's you actually know, what I deal with a lot here. Tom, some, there is there is a lot of open government nonsense happening in the world at any given time. That's why you exist, and that's why we have this segment, so we can help people cut through that nonsense and figure out what records you're entitled to and what you're entitled to know about what your government is going uh, going and doing out there, you know. That's an important part of a democracy. Anyway, I digress. Let's go ahead and jump right in. We got an interesting topic to cover today. We are covering records of investigations. Now, Tom, I understand you frequently get calls from people who are seeking records of investigations and getting denials. Why is that? 
Yeah, this is a really regular sort of occurrence for me. It's a very common complaint I get. And I, th I think what's going on here is that the these are areas that people are very interested in. In particular, it's investigations into government employees, in particular, the police officers who have committed misconduct. Uh, there's just some reporting from Wisconsin Watch about how trouble police officers frequently just get shifted around between uh, different police departments and people aren't really aware of it because it's so hard to get these records. And the other one is teachers. You know, very frequently you'll see a, a quiet notice that a teacher has left in the middle of the year with no explanation and that often sends off a flurry of record requests into what went on. And very often I get calls and emails from people saying I requested these records and they won't give me anything. Hmm. Now, tell me about the exemption policies for investigatory records. What What's the background here we should know? Contrary to what many custodians claim, there is no blanket exemption for investigatory or disciplinary records. I constantly see these denials that say something like, well, this is an ongoing investigation and can't be turned over, or this is per personnel disciplinary files and can't be turned over. Anything like that is highly likely to be an illegal denial, so people should reach out to me if they get that. Now walk me through some of the types of investigatory records that can be withheld. Yeah, there are some that can, and they're set out pretty well in statute. So first of all, current investigations of employees are a black box. So there's a part of the open records law that says that there's an exemption for, quote, information relating to the current investigation of a possible criminal offense or possible misconduct connected with employment by an employee and prior to disposition of the investigation. So there's a couple keys there. First of all, it has to be current. This only applies to ongoing investigations before they have wrapped up. Second, this has to be an employee. It does not apply to elected officials, which I've seen custodians try to do, and it doesn't apply to external investigations. So most of these, for example, law enforcement uh, investigations of potential crimes committed by somebody other than a, a police officer, those kind of investigations are not subject to this exemption. Hmm. Number two, so first exemption is for current investigations of employees. Number two, there is a rule saying that if release of a record would interfere with an ongoing investigation, so this is for external investigations, usually with law enforcement, if release would interfere, they can withhold the records. So supposedly this should be something that is like, the target doesn't know they're being investigated yet, and you don't want to make that public because they will abscond or flee or destroy evidence or stop cooperating, something like that. Or it might interfere if there is uh, some secret investigative techniques that are being used that aren't publicly known yet and that uh, you know criminals, potential criminals, would know how to avoid if that was known. So the those are the two kind of things they should be looking at. But unfortunately, I see custodians raise this a lot just to deny blanket, uh, in a blanket manner, all ongoing investigations. But this is supposed to be record by record. So they should theoretically be looking at one document at a time and saying, can I share this? Or will this, this record, this particular record right here, interfere with something that would let me keep, uh, keep it secret? Now, at what point do I need to lawyer up? At what point do I reach out to you? You know, if you get a response that says, we are denying access to these records, we are denying your request because of an investigation, 
contact me. There's a very good chance that that sort of denial, that blanket denial is unlawful. Hmm. Now there's a case, there's an investigation uh, that I'd like to run by you because it has it has some open government experts here in Wisconsin scratching their head. Now, over the course of the past few years, details have come to light about two hidden camera investigations at uh, the Madison Metropolitan School District. If listeners want to hear more, they should check out Dylan Brogan's reporting on Isthmus. He's done a lot of coverage of this. But essentially, in both of those cases, MMSD conducted an internal investigation into these hidden cameras that had in one place placed by a teacher and in one case been placed by actual MMSD administrators. And then when parents asked and and members of the community asked for those records, MMSD essentially said, sorry, it's an internal investigation. We can't release it. Now, some of those records were later accidentally released to Mrs. Dylan Brogan, but that was an accident. I I, I don't think (laughs) they did that one on purpose. So what's your take on that? How can MMSD say this is an internal investigation? What's protecting them in that case? They are jumping through all kinds of hoops to find an out for themselves to keep as much of a secret as possible. And it's really horrible what they're doing because the public really should know about what exactly happened. How did they investigate it? How did they find out uh, everything that's going on there? But what they're doing, and, and just to go back for a second, based on what I just said, it would seem like these should be releasable because... There's no blanket exemption for investigatory records. The rec- the investigation is done. It's completed. It wouldn't interfere with anything. But what they did is the Madison School District decided to spend a whole lot more money to have a law firm and lawyers do this investigation and write this report. And at that point, they get to say, well, we're not actually relying on the investigation exemptions. We're actually relying on attorney-client privilege because ah. this is communications between us and our, uh, our, our council of choice. And there is some case law that supports that kind of argument. I would say that while it may protect opinions from the lawyers, if the lawyers say, well, you know, here's what you, here are your options for how to deal with this. Here's your potential liability. If you fire the person, you know, the risk that you might get, get sued for unlawful termination or something like that or how to deal with the union, those kind of advice things should be, or at least can be withheld. But it's very different when the lawyer is just being hired to do an investigation of facts that happen hmm. and, and talk to witnesses. So I really wish these kinds of things would be released and that government entities couldn't rely on this kind of cheaty way to spend a whole lot more money just to keep the public from seeing this. Now, how common is that for for a governmental body or an entity to bring on an attorney to conduct these investigations, these internal investigations, just so they have that added layer of protection from people uh, records requesting or open government requesting? I don't think open government requesting is proper grammar, but essentially trying to get access to these documents. How common is that? It didn't used to be very common at all, uh, but it's there's been an uptick in the past year or so of, of places doing this because they realize they can get around things with it, get away with something. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there because we are out of time for this episode. I've been joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over there at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, as always, thanks for sitting down with me this week. No problem, Jonah. It's been uh, always good to do this. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. 
You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. New Domains goes to Shrekfest and Radio Chipstone talks snake oil and fake medicine. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Jonah Chester, here with my co-host, Sholly Pittman. Thanks for joining us. In 2001, the film Shrek was released to critical and popular acclaim. The film, which won the first Oscar for Best Animated Feature, continues to enthrall audiences with its twist on the traditional knight in shining armor fairy tale. Now, as Shrek turns 20... We look back at this groundbreaking movie and a local Madison tradition honoring its cultural legacy. This week on New Domains, feature contributor Paul Herman goes to Shrekfest. Welcome to New Domains, a series about digital culture in and around Madison. My name is Paul Herman. Today, I'll be sharing another story behind our virtual landscape. Once upon a time, in 2014, there was an event posted to Facebook called Shrekfest. It would be a celebration of the 2001 animated film to be held in Madison, Wisconsin. It promised an onion-eating contest, a roaring competition, a cover band of Smash Mouth, and more festivities based on the film. Grant Dufferin is a multimedia artist from Milwaukee. He runs 3GI, an online comedy and art group. When he heard of the event from friends, he was excited to go. I just always remember how I felt when I found out about it. I was like, that's funny. We were all pumped to go to it. But it turned out the event was a joke, a fake event page. But Grant was determined. And I just kind of took it upon myself to make that concept become real. Shrekfest truly debuted in July of 2014, with about 50 to 80 attendees. First held in James Madison Park, it moved to Warner Park in 2018. Year by year, it grew from dozens of festgoers to hundreds. It garnered national attention for its absurdity. People covered in green face paint, eating onions as fast as they can. To find out, we'll have to go further once upon a time. In 2001, the animated film Shrek was released. It's a story about an ogre who goes to rescue a princess as an errand only for the two to fall in true love. The film was a parody of traditional fairy tales and served as a stark contrast to the Disney films of the previous decades. It became critically acclaimed and a smash hit. At the 74th Academy Awards, Shrek won the first ever Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. Shrek! Aaron Warner! It went on to spawn a media franchise of sequels, spin-offs, a musical, and merchandise. For many in my generation, it became one of the many pop culture symbols of the early 2000s. 2010, though, was the last time Shrek graced the silver screen in Shrek Forever After. 
But Trek's place in popular culture evolved in a bizarre turn with the emergence of internet and meme culture in the early 2010s. Marcy Lassert is an animator and motion designer from Minneapolis, now living in New York City. Along with participating in a remake of the Shrek film, produced by Grant, she reported for Quartz in 2018 about the Shrek fandom. Marcy explains how Shrek took its place in an internet meme culture. All memes about media on the internet are just like taking some, an isolated element of that piece of media and then like making a joke about it basically. But then like the meme part is how easily it spreads and how people build upon it in order to, you know, basically turn something into a format. It's basically decontextualizing some image or word it's like an in-joke. It's like an in-group joke for people who are in the know of, uh, you know, whatever franchise they're joking about. Shrek was specifically parodying Sleeping Beauty era art and animation. And then the distinction that I made about Shrek memes is that they're sort of in the spirit of the original film in that it's parodying meme culture itself. So it's like self-reflexive and complicated, yeah. Like all memes, Shrek memes range in complexity. Many are simply quotes from the films that have gained a popularity across the web. Layers! Onions have layers. Some of you may die, but it's a sacrifice I am willing to make. What are you doing in my swamp? Perhaps most famously, Shrek memes are associated with one song featured in the film that's become an anthem for both Shrek and internet culture at large. Somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me. Lots of Shrek memes remix the music from All Star or take quotes from the lyrics. And many Shrek memes involve truly bizarre, surreal videos that can be found on YouTube. They often remix Shrek with other media in an ironic fandom, making fun of the original films. And it's in this context Shrekfest is born in 2014. I've personally been to Shrekfest since 2017. Going there is a mix of people, some celebrating Shrek as an internet joke, but also a lot of sincere love for the film. Grant fits into the latter. It seems like whenever I do interviews, people always ask me that question. Like, do memes inspire you? And the answer is no. I've heard Shrekfest been described as meme fest. And as much as that hurts me, I can't deny that makes total sense. I guess it for me, it's Shrekfest is a lot of like actual hard work. The internet has created interconnectivity like never before. And we are now able to have inside jokes like never before. Um, to people you've never met across the world through memes, we develop a collective language. I think that's where it's factoring in. And most people at Trekfest take part in sincere revelry as well. People cheer on participants in the costume contest. They go crazy to see who will win the onion-eating competition. And during a screening of the film at night, phones are lifted up like torches during emotional songs. The Madison community is also integral to Shrekfest. Local bands play covers of the soundtrack. Artists and food vendors from across the state set up booths. And it's been sponsored by the Great Dane Pub and Brewing Company, who made a beer out of onions for the 2019 festival. Grant says Madison is the perfect home for Shrekfest. Keeping it, a lot of aspects of the fest local to Madison, I do feel is important. And I, I always like feel like Shrekfest couldn't exist anywhere other than Madison. And I've thought many times about bringing it to Milwaukee, because that's where I'm from. 
and it would make things so much easier for me to do it in Milwaukee. But for some reason, Madison feels right. And also to people who are traveling, they have to take a flight to Chicago or Milwaukee, rent a car, and then drive to Madison. It feels like it is in the kingdom of far, far away, being in Madison. Shrekfest popularity allowed Grant to pursue more Shrek-related creative ventures, one that has even eclipsed Shrekfest itself. In 2018, 3GI released Shrek Retold on their YouTube. It's a crowdsourced remake of the entire film, shot for shot, and music completely recomposed. Over 200 artists, animators, and musicians contributed. Marcy was one of the contributors. Like for many in the project, it was a snap decision. Yeah, I've literally always loved Shrek, unironically. Like, it's like, like Shrek 2 is like one of the, it's incredible film. So this, it was kind of like a no-brainer for me to make it. And I made it, I made my contribution to Shrek Retold in like under an hour, maybe. So it was just like really a way to let loose. It's an eclectic mix of live action, home video-like recreations of scenes to original animation that could be hand-drawn, 3D, puppets, and everything in between. One scene is reimagined as an anime battle. Oh, yeah. Another as a rap video. We steal from the rich and give to the needy. I take a little cut cause I And the film's that. ending song, I'm a Believer, is made to be an 80s ballad. Marcy says Grant's work can truly be appreciated as they are, art. People who don't understand it, who don't participate in it, are always asking, like, are these people serious? Are they joking? Like, what do they mean? I don't, I don't know if people, like, consider him, like, an artist, but, like, to me, he's, like, fully um, an artist. And if you look at his website and you look at his work, like, you can tell that he has, he has, like, a vision for all of this stuff. Shrek Retold has now garnered over 7 million views on YouTube. Its popularity has only grown Shrekfest, which reached hundreds of attendees in 2019. The pandemic has stopped the in-person celebration, but not Shrekfest. 2020's festival was held online via the streaming platform Twitch. Grant and his friends aired fan-submitted content and entries into the competitions. Grant almost sees Shrekfest online as a fitting experience and somebody even described it as a homecoming for Shrek because you know, it, Shrek had a rebirth on the internet and having Shrekfest online, it's, it makes total sense for it to return to that form. 2021 will be no different. Shrekfest will air next week, Saturday, September 11th. So Shrek grew from a 2001 acclaimed film to cultural icon to almost a joke to a sincere celebration here in Madison. The entire Shrekfest community, including myself, eagerly await for a week and celebrate in a swampy park again in person. Until then, we will keep spreading the word of Shrek is love, Shrek is life. Thank you for listening to New Domains. Reporting for WRT News, I'm Paul Herman.
It's now 6.44 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. History with medical remedies is long and complicated. In spite of our many advances, there are many people who don't have access to medical care. Unfortunately, there have always been those who prey upon fear and use the hope of feeling better as a tool to fleece those in need. This episode of Radio Chipstone is an excerpt from a podcast hosted by contributor Jennifer Fields called Refrangible. The episode, entitled Bodies, begins with a discussion of Joe Kapler, lead curator in the Wisconsin Historical Society's Division of Museums and Historic Sites. Fields and Kapler talk about a time when questionable medical advice didn't arrive via via a search engine. It traveled slowly by horse and wagon. Absolutely proven that you will not become ill. How do you know that? They probably don't or they do know because it's just sugar, flour, or something like that. They know it's not going to kill you because there's nothing to it, right? You know, I could, I could see that uh, as well. Um, but they're a, probably a much less litigious society at the, that time, but, you know, legal recourse is a way to keep these people honest. Legal recourse and running them out of town on a rail. <laughs> I mean, how many movies? I can't think mm-hmm. of... Of course, I can't think of one right now. But there's so many where you see the wagon pull up, you know, and you see the locals come out and you hear the the person who is the... The huckster man. The huckster man. The huckster man comes out, usually in a suit. selling you snake oil. You've heard, you know, people have heard of the... It's now a metaphor, a snake oil salesman. So snake oil being something kind of a mystery... Here is Rattlesnake Bill's liniment. Wait, wait a minute. This is genuine diamondback rattlesnake fat. Oil, probably just the oil pressed out of, if it really is that, uh, would, would be the oil pressed out of a fatty tissue. Yeah. So it very well could be. Do I think it? Cures rheumatic pains, pains in the back, strains, sprains, bruises, sore, aching feet, stiff joints, sore muscles, throat irritation, nasal irritation, headache, earache, toothache, corns, calluses, bunions for external use only. Uh, I don't know how then you, you deal with toothache for external use only. What you see when you're looking at all these products and these packages is they're all targeting those aches and pains and things that legitimate medical science in 1905 and in 2021 can't necessarily get their arms around. You can't x-ray it. You can't image it. Um, It's those aches and pains in the human condition that we'd like to see go away. I'm not even going to lie to you, Joe. I was nervous when you just picked that up because we don't know what that is. For the listener, it's sealed in a bag, and it's also it's still in a sealed container, and the liquid is kind of an amber, an amber-looking liquid. 
that is a concern in historical collections with older pharmaceuticals. The material at the time may have been dangerous, but still sold. Um, or over 100 years, that material has evolved and into something else or something that's toxic or unstable. Um, so, you know, museums around the country, including us, have worked to identify, isolate, and then remove those materials from the collections, you know, using professional, you know, hazmat handlers. I would say on the whole, you know, that's just a fraction of the materials. I think most of it is probably always was fairly ineffective and inert and is probably fairly inert today. And you know, th that seems to me, Joe, that seems to me that that's the only way. I mean, we're talking about a time where, pe time where people are traveling by horse. It's slow moving. You're not on the internet. You can't Google, you can't text somebody, mm -hmm. oh my God, OMG, I just bought some snake oil from Snake Oil Harry and it made me sick. These people have to outrun their reputation. Mm -hmm. And so you can't have people dying along the trail. I don't know when the phrase entered language, but I'm sure it was a long, 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 long time ago. If something sounds too good to be true, <laughs> you know, uh, there's so many of these that it's just, it's, they're pretty laughable from a 21st century perspective. Put yourself in the shoes of someone a hundred plus, uh, you know, hundred years ago, 120 years ago, let's say 1900, you know, would they have the contextual knowledge that we do today? and their back is sore, or they have this nagging cough, and they want or hope for a remedy and willing to try anything. Today, we still are looking for that miracle cure, that miracle diet, that miracle thing that's gonna make us younger, better, faster, thinner, taller, or whatever that may be. Hair potions, we're still looking for that now, and people are still selling questionable sure. potions. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think that's part of the human condition. I think the difference between now and then is theoretically, whoever, uh, whoever is creating these and, and pitching them and, and marketing them, um, you know, they're also then a bit responsible for what happens to their product uh, as well. You know, those consumer protections that we have come to really trust. But the idea of, of simple relief of aches and pains or dealing with those pesky wrinkles or graying hairs or receding hairlines, you know, that's hardwired uh, into us. And so I'm holding in my hand here, this is a box, um, contained three bars of soaps, this is small hand, hand soaps. This is Lamar Reducing Soap, distributed by Lamar Laboratories of Cleveland, Ohio. And you can see on the package, Wash away fat and years of age. Reduce with soap. So this simple soap, if you use this soap, as the graphic on here would seem to imply, you be lose weight and become younger. The graphic shows uh, the transformation of an older, heavier woman to a younger, thinner woman just by using the soap. I got to wonder at whatever time, 1910, 2010, someone would look at that and could think that that's possible, that just simply using a soap would turn back the clock. Somebody put a lot of energy and effort and then money into that packaging 
Because the packaging, it's actually, what would you call it? Ecologically sound. It's, it's, it's cardboard. Yeah. It's paper. It has that medical sort of gray-blue mm -hmm. tone to it. If you walked past this in the, if you walk past this in the store now, it would look like something that would have been prescribed to you. It's that sort of packaging. You see officialness. You'll, fe you'll see official seal of some entity. Who knows what that entity is? Or um, trusted. Yeah, I remember growing up as uh, and hearing commercials on television. Four out of five dentists recommend. Really? You know, it's as a seven-year-old, I call BS on that, right? Four out of, oh, did you go around and ask, you know, I don't believe that first, you know, I didn't believe that's a natural, maybe skeptic in me. So, how, you know, how do you prove it? You know, did they have a footnote there, you know, based on a study of 3,417? Yeah. No, they never, mostly they never say that, you know. So, uh, you, you see so much official language on here that, Again, from our 21st century perspective, it's just you roll your eyes. And I remember guaranteed to, so it's guaranteed to, cure, guaranteed to bring you a fuller happy, guaranteed to. Just words. Just, just words. Just words. Talk is cheap, right? You know, and who's going to be around in a month or a year to say, you know what? That didn't bring me happiness. What's, what would be your recourse? Wash away years of fat and age. Just, years. Just wash it away. Wash it away. You know, this is another one here. Pascola, a flesh-forming food, artificially digested for thin, pale people. Theoretically, if you or someone you know or maybe your child is thin and pale or sickly or something like that, um, that's probably, could be, uh, a symptom of something else. It's not about just fattening them up a little. That'll make them healthy. You know, it's about the root cause. But this is bypassing all that and just trying to make them right look normal, right? What does this say and all, here? And all wasting diseases. So again, that's treating a symptom and not a cause. Let this like even even if this worked, it would just be treating a symptom and not a, and not a cause. Superseding cod liver oil. It will be assimilated. Into, you know, into your body. It will be assimilated without any digestive effort. Again, so all these, are, you start reading um, in, in these large pamphlets here, there's never any work. It, you know, it's just, it's easy. There's no, they don't call them side effects. There's no ill effects. You know, it's, it's all so unbelievably too good to be true in their language. I sometimes I feel like, you know, just stop. You should have stopped at page one. But you have five pages of spewing, you know, BS. Uh, maybe, maybe, I don't know, some of these things worked, and I'm sure a lot of these were spectacular business failures. Probably most. And what's, what's interesting, too, when you have, it's easy. It's, you don't even have to digest it. So then that stands to reason if it doesn't work, you're not, either you've not taken it enough, but somehow you've done something wrong. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not the product, you know, or you have to up your, your dosage. Take one daily. If not seeing desired results, you know, take three daily. They're just stepping you into more and more consumption. Like with the electric brand laxative we're standing by. Electric. 
quote in quotes, electric brand laxative. So this is early 1900s, electricity is moving into the home, into products. It is this magical thing. You flip a switch and your lights come on and your appliances are now electrified or not mechanical. So what in the world does electric have to do with laxative? And I don't think I, I, don't, think, I don't think I would want electric to, right? No, so I don't want to like, I don't want bolts of lightning like, coming out of my body. Electric brand laxative, formerly called electric brand bitters. This medicine contains alcohol, 18%. It's 36 proof, right? For extracting and preserving the medicinal properties and to prevent freezing. The magic ingredient, the secret sauce, is just alcohol. Hey, I, you know... Still is in a lot of things. Would you even care if you were constipated if you right. drank something that was 36 proof? So, you know, maybe, maybe that's the idea here. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Seeger Gray, and we should also note that it was Seeger's final day of reporting. And we wish him the best of luck as he heads off to college. Good luck, Seeger. Special thanks to feature contributors Jennifer Fields, Tom Kamenick, and Paul Herman. Dylan Brogan engineered the show this evening. I'm your producer and host for tonight, Jonah Chester. And I'm Sholly Pittman, news director at WORT and tonight's co-host. Stay up to date with WORT's local news podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine, followed by Radio Literature. Have a great night, everyone.